Coming to the end of a, another day, another day in the life of me. <coughs> you can reflect on the results of the day, how it's been. We've been involved with whether we're serving, supporting the retreat, doing work, or in the offices, in the kitchens, in the gardens. Whether we've been sitting, all of us here at Guy House, at the end of the day we can reflect how has it been, how is it, to stop and pause now. Today we've been. contemplating and cultivating this uh, quality, this skill of samatha, of steadying the mental energy, the thinking mind, uh, the steadying that on something simple, something immediate, something very accessible, the breath, the body, sensation, the sound, and getting a feeling maybe for simplification, uh, for, for not having so much uh, to engage with. Getting a feeling for just being rather than doing so much. So much of our identity is connected with what we do, what we've achieved in our life, perhaps, or what we've felt we've not achieved, what we've done, what we're going to do. The first question people ask, isn't it, sometimes, what do you do? And in this samatha, this simplification, this disengaging, not because there's a version necessary, there might be a version, but not because there's a version to activity or to the world, necessarily, but just uh, for the sake of learning a skill to consciously disengage from activity, um, from being involved with our doing, to get a sense for what is it like just to be, be with one breath, be with one step, be with eating, be with moving around the house, being with resting being with a restless mind, being with a peaceful state of mind, being with emotions that might come, different feelings that come to us. What's that like just to be without without having to necessarily explain, rationalize, engage, discuss, discern, but just to be able to be with the moments of our experience, undiluted. So this cultivation of samatha is a, is a skill. Uh, it's a, it's a getting a, a feeling for this movement that we can make towards abiding in a sense of inner well-being. And at first that's not always present, that's why We've been talking about this notion of training. First, we 
it sounds good maybe, but we, we, the experience of not engaging might be just a restless experience. The mind might just be restless. Or we might just be dull. We might have experienced tiredness and dullness, which, can, which is quite uh, common first days of a retreat. Or uncertainty, uh, doubting, mind. That we can just reflect on what is it like to be patient sometimes, to not be able to necessarily move away so easily from that which we find uncomfortable. There's a lot about this notion of training, and some of the training attention to also be able to stay there when, when it feels not that comfortable, when perhaps habitually we might move our attention to something more pleasing or distract the attention or absorb into something, uh, anything, doesn't matter what, to absorb away from just feeling perhaps not that comfortable in our being. So we can, we can look at that, we can, we can just, when we meet that experience, if it's not that comfortable, what is our relationship to that? All of this we can, we can investigate, what is our relationship to what we designate as discomfort? Not to judge that, but just to notice what is our relationship to the body, to our breath, to the feelings. So the samatha starts to reveal some of these subtleties of our experience that we usually just uh, gloss over in the busyness of our daily life. And it can be the first few days or one's fairly new to this experience, it can feel quite challenging. Sometimes people describe when they first start to do these kind of meditation retreats, they feel like one day is about 20 years. They get to about (laughs) half past eight in the morning and it's like this endless desert until the evening. Or they sit down for... A 45-minute meditation isn't actually that long. I mean, we're actually the softies of the Vipassana circuit. uh, (laughs) You sit down for 45 minutes, and after five minutes, ten minutes, have a little sneak at the watch, and it feels like it's been an hour. And it's only been five minutes. Sometimes it can feel like that for some people. And all mine can just get very bored. There's a sense of distraction, boredom, there's a, we can, we've, we've created these habits where we haven't really paid a, bothered to pay attention to the subtle aspect of our, of our experience. It doesn't interest us. We, we sometimes used to be very stimulated, very entertained. And it, it's not necessarily that entertaining to sit here with the breath, to sit here with an uncomfortable knee or an agitated mind. And sometimes it's not so much the results, which is what perhaps we tend to be focused on, what are the results, but what we're actually developing in meeting our being, the qualities that we develop in meeting our experience, qualities of patience. It takes a lot of patience just to stay with a day like today. Um, it takes a lot of determination to stay through a whole retreat. It takes a lot of, of flexibility, kindliness, 
uh, agility to be able to work and move and and shift in relationship to the different experiences that we have in kind when we feel there's maybe a tightness in the in the heart or in the body being re- relaxing it takes some honesty to just meet ourselves so these are these are sometimes called barami or or positive karmic forces that are, that are consciously developed in this cultivation of skill of something like samatha or the meditative process and in this cultivation of these different skills or these baramis there's not there's not so much focus on the result of where we or, or of where one is going which is helpful to remember to look when we reflect on today is not so much just about how has it been in terms of how we feel, where we feel we've got to, but in just also looking in what it's taken for us to actually sustain this practice throughout the day. And there's moments when we might want to give up and we just stay with it a bit longer and develop a little bit more strength. Or we might have found that it's actually been very peaceful Sometimes in the samatha, some people have a natural aptitude for it. It becomes uh, very, very um, enjoyable. Gets a sense of enjoying the calm. And talking this morning about these more subtle nimittas that can appear. At first, we're focusing on the outward manifestation of the senses, maybe the, the breath energy the coarse breath, the inhalation and the exhalation as it comes to the nostril, expands the lungs down into the abdomen feeling that breath and then the exhalation that's in, in a way the coarser breath energy and that's what when we bring with this vitaka bringing the mind to, bringing attention to breath, first of all that's what many of us experience this, this cosmic rhythm almost and first it's us breathing, my breath and then really it's just breath we're, we're being breathed almost we just feel this movement allowing the attention just to rest on that movement can be very peaceful filled with the breath energy filling the body with the breath energy and sometimes just on Allowing the attention to stay with the breath, the more subtle aspect of breath energy can appear. Just a subtle vibration in the body. It feels like the external, what we might call external breath, fades. For some people it can even feel like the breath is stopping altogether. It can get quite worried. The body feels light, can feel light. It's just a very subtle movement, what they call the Yodatu, the 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 wind or the air element just subtly moving, vibrating just aware of subtle vibration so what first of all perhaps the breath was stronger can become quite subtle or maybe just a very subtle sensation or in the sound we're talking about the nimitta each of the senses has an external, external and then a, what they call a nimitta, an internal, more subtle manifestation. So the sound, like you can hear the, the, the uh, crows or rooks outside tonight, you hear my voice, 
the external manifestation of sound as it comes, hits the ear. And we can, that can be an object for our samatha practice, just to notice sound. It can be very calming when we're, when we're so occupied with our thinking process, just to be able to turn to sound. As I mentioned this morning, I, I did that quite a lot. On uh, particularly one retreat when the mind was in quite a lot of chaos, and the breath was too fine for me. And then, uh, then the sound, external sound, became very calming. And sometimes sound can also manifest manifest on a more subtle level, just the sometimes called the sound of silence, just the inner hum, like a humming sound, like when you when you're a child and you picked up a seashell and put it to your ear and you could hear an echo. Or it's like the sea roaring. It can it can sound like that, and that can be something one can bring one's attention to. Almost when the mind is stilled, it can even be there when there's not when the mind's quite busy actually. Mm. Or sometimes people experience lights coming or colours coming, the inner nimitta of sight. Yeah, just all swirls, swirls, or, or, or just uh, a light colour. One can take one's attention to that. It's a more subtle manifestation. It's more rare, but there can be subtle smell, subtle taste. It's not so usual. And even on the thought level, at first the thoughts can, can, can the thoughts are very clunky or very coarse. And as they become stilled, they can become very, like, very fine, very subtle, even stilling altogether. And when there's, there's, there's a sense of samadhi, when there's, when the, the mind energy is gathered, not just refracted or distracted, there's a sense of composure, stillness. Maybe there's no need to hold to any object then, the attention to any object. Just a more uh, settling into just being in awareness. Still, sometimes, sense of movement, sound, subtle breath. It can be very, very peaceful. This is, in a way, one of the, as one develops over the course of a lifetime, Summer to meditation, it uh, is an abiding, it can be an abiding, a peaceful abiding. Its fruit is a sense of tranquility. Uh, Skidisara called it a holiday, being, knowing how to, to put down, put everything down for the sake of turning inward and knowing a peaceful sense of well-being. But it's, it's not necessarily considered in the whole view of path or the whole, if you like, the whole way of, of awakening. It's not necessarily considered just an end in itself. It's a very fine end and it's, in a way, it's a, it's off, it's a more, usually a more skillful way of cultivating a sense of well-being than many other ways we can choose. But it's also something one can become very attached to. And we can always get, um, we always know when we've become attached because we become irritated when we get disturbed. <laughs> when someone turns on the, the machine outside or 
the person next to us moves or so if we descend, descend, start to descend into irritation and negativity then it's a sure indication that we've, we've on some way I mean it's very easy to, to become attached to peaceful and calm states and it's a bit of a, a sort of yogi's disease almost it's, you know, some, you know, we've often felt so our minds have been so fevered in our in our daily lives that sometimes we get a feeling of peace and naturally there's this contraction around it this ownership and a desire to seek even more and then if we don't actually have a sense for its proper place samatha if we don't have a perspective on it we can if we think that's an end in itself to become more and more peaceful then we can create this battlefield with the, that which we feel is disturbing us so this samatha, all of the all practices have to be picked up with some kind of um, understanding, some reflective capacity, not to get uh, caught in them as an end in themselves. When I first, when I, after my first retreat that I did, um, when I came back to my I was living in a student lodging, when I came back to my lodging. I set up my cushion and sat down and uh, was uh, endeavouring to practice, try to do what I'd learnt on the retreat and sat down um, in my front room and an ice cream van pulled out outside and it was one of these inane kind of songs and going on and on and on and on and on and on and I found myself, I still can't quite believe I did this but I found myself rushing outside to tell this poor ice cream vendor, would he mind buzzing off because he was, he was disturbing my meditation <laughs> feeling very righteous about it because I was meditating <laughs> and, and definitely an ice cream van was something very unspiritual <laughs> it's a sure sign of some kind of distorted <laughs> delusion going on there Well, another story I like that uh, some of you heard when Ajahn Chah first came to, to London and uh, they'd set up, uh, he was, they'd asked him to give a talk at the small Vihara they had, a house in Hampstead uh, Heath and it was a summer's evening and they, the people had gathered to listen to the famous and great meditation master Ajahn Chah and because it was so hot, they had all the windows open. And then, unfortunately, across the road, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, there was a pub with a rock band playing that night. <laughs> so, of course, Ajahn Chah, he couldn't really open his mouth at all. It was just too much competition. So, he, he sat there. He was quite happy. He had no problem for him. Everybody else was squirming and upset and creating a huge problem out of it. And he was just smiling. And at the end, you know, when there was a, a break in the songs and there was a bit of silence, a bit of space, he just said, well, did you, did that sound disturb you or did you go out and disturb that sound? <laughs> so this is called, you know, uh, what Ajahn Chah is very good at teaching, Samaditi, which means balanced seeing or seeing according to Dharma. Being able to be flexible, skillful with these techniques and practices that we pick up. So everything has a pitfall in it. it. Has a promise and a pitfall. So this this samatha is really 
in many ways one, one aspect of the path, a very, but a very important one and something that's worth cultivating. Samadhi, this, this ability to have a taste, a feeling for composure, for steadiness. We've been cultivating patiently bit by bit today. Someone was asking about uh, lay life or monastic life and uh, so on, differences and um, one of the, the few thoughts that um, come to me, one of them, I want to talk a little bit about that, but one of them I, I, I feel is this um, notion that uh, of using any lifestyle really, any form. I mean, ultimately they're just form, monasticism, what we call monastic life, or what we might call lay life, although those distinctions perhaps in some ways don't apply so strictly as they might do in Asia. Or even in Asia, I mean, that, that you know, is not... Uh, we have uh, sort of blurred areas. People in... Uh, here, like people living at Gaia House or in different communities, uh, live almost like a semi-monastic lifestyle. Or people living in in lay life with some of the principles. And I spent when I was uh, earlier on in my practice, I spent uh, a lot of time and energy doubting around what is the best form to to live in. Uh, and I've come to the feeling. Somehow, I think just through a process, actually, of many years, of feeling it doesn't really matter a huge amount. <laughs> it's more how you use what you have and what your particular inclination is. Um, but what one can reflect on is that every form that we choose, whether it's a, a relationship or family life or the, the work that we might be involved with or whether it's one of of, of travelling, wander, wandering, going from one Dharma centre to another where we don't perhaps have the conventional, so-called conventional life or whether it's living in an ashram or a monastery all of them can be vehicles all of them can be used as vehicles for cultivating these these, uh, these qualities that are needed for supporting the flowering of awakening, these baramis or baramitas, these, uh, these qualities of um, spiritual virtues, if you like, spiritual powers. Or barami literally means that which grows into perfection, like a flower, something that perfects, that blossoms. It's an energy that we, your skill, if you like, we've been, we're developing barami every day actually, moments of patience, generosity, um, determination, renunciation, simplification, kindness, uh, wisdom, honesty, energy, application, all of these classical uh, equanimity, all of these are something we're applying, supporting skill like samatha, meditative skill. And one can extend that not only to meditation, but to see that you know, our lifestyle is also a place or a mandala within which we can cultivate consciously these qualities that support 
You look at the the lifetimes of the Buddha in the in the in the uh, way of looking at what gives rise to a samma sambodhi, uh, perfectly not just a, having a taste a Buddha is not one like Sakyamuni Buddha, the Buddha of this age, wasn't one that just had a taste for liberation, for nibbana, for non-grasping, for the heart, knowing its own natural primordial abiding. Uh, that's something many, many beings have a taste for. But it was fully unshakable. And not only that, he had cultivated through many lifetimes the amazing capacity and ability to respond perfectly to every being, every situation that he met. This is why he was known as a great teacher, so that the teaching could last through time and space, to this point here at Guy House, 2,542 years, within this particular span of the Buddha's teaching. So this is, this is called Samma Sambodhi, a sort of complete, if you like, not only knowing classic called the unconditioned, knowing how to let go, to, to be released, but knowing how to respond skillfully to the world of form, to pick up through, through compassion. So this, what, what carries this, it's not just a sort of haphazard affair. <laughs> it might seem like that to us, but from the perspective we see it, because we don't see the causal process involved, but what carries is this classically is talked about as this stream, if you like, this cultivation of barami, of these, these spiritual qualities, these profound um, bringing to perfection these very profound, very beautiful qualities which can adorn our life in whichever form. And one of these, these we've been working on today uh, which appears in, in many of these classical lists as a very important barami. It appears as one of the factors of enlightenment out of the uh, Bojanga, the seven factors or the seven limbs of enlightenment. It appears as one of the factors of the Eightfold Path. It appears as one of the five indriyas, or what they call spiritual powers. It appears as one of the ten parameters. What else is that? I mean, it appears over and over again is this quality of wiriya. Wiriya, or what's called effort, or application, and it's a word that you know. Sometimes you say effort, one also one can automatically become a little bit uptight or <laughs> strained. It's a word sometimes that I don't even know. I have to, I think, look into a, if you have any ideas about other translations. I'd be interested. Wiriya, sort of application sustaining or effort or something what supports the whole thing the whole practice is our ability to bring energy to what we bring energy to is supported by where our faith is really our faith supports our effort or what we believe in that's where our energy will appear what is important for us in our life if our if our career is important we'll have energy for that if our relationship is important, we'll have energy for that. Um, whatever it is, I mean, there's a million and one things we have energy for. But this, looking at this, um, this, this wiria energy, this cultivation of this parami is a very deep resource that we can add to, that we can sustain through a lifetime. It's, it's applicable 
very much so in both monasticism for me when I lived in the monastery was a was a barami that was cultivated very consciously and 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 a lot and it's something that can be used also very skillfully drawn upon in in, in so-called lay life I'm not very happy about that term either but, uh, secular non-monastic life and they, in this way they talk about four streams or four aspects which we've been perhaps looking at maybe we haven't defined it quite as consciously as that um, and they they are basically to do with the, the stream of positive karma positive activity uh, wholesome they're called kusala karma wholesome karma and akusala which means unwholesome karmas or actions of body, speech and mind which lead to more uh, unhappy or, or constricted or suffering as a result so these efforts uh, in relationship to akusala that which is unwholesome in the mind and we've been perhaps noticing in the mind in the thinking patterns we're talking about mind training looking at creativity in relationship to our thinking patterns we don't have to endlessly dwell in crappy kinds of thoughts or negative kinds of patternings um, so in the meditation there's many angles that one can work at this from many different approaches and the meditative process is one way but at least in the meditative process one gets very directly in touch you sit here all day listening to, to the thinking mind how the power of it how it does as I mentioned earlier the, the thoughts literally the energy of thought what we give the thoughts that we give energy to literally starts to shape our lives that's why it's very very important to be able to have a, a creative relationship to thought we're not just victims of any old we don't have to be victims of any old thinking process we can so this, these efforts are partly in relationship to that can be seen partly in relationship to just literally what mind streams do we cultivate in our in our mind in our hearts so this in relationship to this akusala unwholesome the two streams of these aspects of what's called samawiriya the, the balanced efforts first one to avoid that which is unwholesome to be able to turn away to not have to engage, to not ha- have to hang out with situations, um, if we have the choice, places, people, stimulations that actually create, unnecessarily create, um, greed or lust or aversion in the mind, in the heart. That we have that capacity and uh, there's an effort we can make to literally just turn away, to not engage with. I think we're talking about monasticism there's a lot in, in the monastic holding uh, about this you know, as a monk or a nun um, there's a, a lot that one avoids contact with and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean to say you've finished you've really purified perhaps um, some of the uh, more unskillful relationship to what one might engage with. For example, in a monastery, um, one avoids... uh, It's interesting, I was just thinking about this uh, differences 
in what one engages with in lay life in the monastery. In the monastery, you avoid contact with money. If you're living it in a pure way, I mean, there's monasteries and monasteries and ways and ways of living this life. Uh, money is a powerful energy, as we know. It brings up a lot of different things. And one way of dealing with it, one way that I worked with it when I spent my 12 years in the monastic training was I just didn't have anything to do with personal finances. No, I didn't have no personal power over, uh, over the realm of money and uh, over the realm of, uh, of possessions, really. There was very little one's possessions were very small. A robe, a bowl, a few books, maybe, pencil. You could get very attached about those, the colour of your robe, <laughs> your, your things. I mean, in a way that helped to have very few possessions helped illuminate, you know, I mean, become absurd to become attached over a cup, really. Um, but one in a lay life that gets more refracted, our desire and our attachments become more rationalised and refracted, so we don't actually see the core energy sometimes. But when you've got, you know, when your cup gets broken by a novice that's cleaning it, and you feel, you can feel something happening in relationship. It's only a cup. I mean, it's nothing. But you know, well, there, there's there's some energy there. So this this in a way, this is interest was interesting to work in that way. Just just practicing in a way of of trusting. Uh, so if one was asked to give teachings, if one was asked to visit a meditation group, if one was asked to, if one was seeing someone in a counselling capacity. The issue of money just didn't happen and it was very peaceful in a way. That wasn't an agenda that was happening. didn't mean to say necessarily that one had finished with issues around money. (laughs) It's just that there was a a, a certain um, protection in a way, a certain protection from engaging. And for for some very good reasons, um, ideally to keep the monastic uh, community free from the complications and power that can happen when when a community like that gets engaged with accumulating a lot of wealth. Um, but I what I what I uh, notice going from I mean, in a way it was a very good training for me. But then going from that life to engaging with money became clear to me that I had issues. <laughs> there were issues there. Um, for my family conditioning, from just a sense of survival, sense of security. And I think I learned, one can learn from both. For me, there was a lot to learn from both. There was a lot to learn from just not having any contact, not having any control over shopping, what I wanted, what I wanted to get. Um, and there was, there's a lot to learn also about in, in terms of working with money as well. Um, where there's a possessiveness, where there's anxiety. Uh, where there's a sort of energy that uh, I saw someone sent me a, a postcard. It was um, from America. It was uh, someone had done these these postcards, which were humorous postcards around um, a, a psychotherapeutic practice. And there's one. There's a guy coming in to see his therapist, and he's got his wallet open. And he's pulling out a, he's pulling out some dollar bills, and he says, "Every time I do this, it hurts." <laughs> <laughs> Something in in, in that, that uh, letting go, letting money go. I've been practicing with that as well. How to contain it, how to to work with it responsibly, um, and how to be able to keep from that monastic training, keep.
keep the perspective, it's not mine ultimately, it's just energy, how to use it, how to let it go. And it's, it's yeah, there's a lot to learn there. So this, in a way, the avoiding can be at certain stages of our growth useful, especially if we know there's a, an area in life that we get sucked into and, and lost. And we might feel, well, as a, as a meditator, I should be able to handle that. I should actually be able to walk right into the middle of a situation that challenges me the most. But we might not be able to handle it. Maybe realistically, uh, there may be situations that, that we're not strong enough yet to handle. And it's perhaps okay. It's like a, a young tree growing. You put a, a, a barrier around it. You can put fences around it. We have needs. When the young tree is growing, it can be eaten away. And in a way, the spiritual practice can be like that. At first, it, one can be quite vulnerable. And we might need to protect ourselves in certain ways. We might need to really think about what do we, what things do we engage with, and what's necessary, and what's not. What friends do we have that are necessary and not? What what people, situations support us, and what what, what doesn't? Yes, when the tree grows into a big oak tree, then it doesn't need its barrier anymore. It doesn't need its little protecting fence. It's, it can actually shelter and give life and support. It has a natural strength. So to avoid, to really know what is really for our welfare and what's not, this is something that we can that can grow out of our mindfulness practice, and to know how to avoid, how to turn away, how to say no, this isn't that helpful. To overcome that which is uh, already tendencies that have arisen in the mind, in the heart. Mm. That that uh, if perpetuated, we know this is. This will lead to not a very um, wholesome result if I act on this, if I speak on this energy. So sometimes there's a need just to contain in a meditative way, just to contain, just to hold, just to bring patience. And having skill in working with that which has already arisen, which we might broadly call a kusala kamma. An energy that's not something we want to dwell in or perpetuate but there's, it's arisen there's not a question of avoiding it we can we can hold mm. and the other two on the positive side to to develop and to maintain the kusala the wholesome but that takes energy that does take willia that does take effort to want to develop something positive in our life we might wish the kingdom come I wish I had a peaceful mind of samatha tranquility. But if we don't do anything about it, we might occasionally drop into a peaceful state in a haphazard way. We're sitting watching a beautiful sunset and the sea and everything and we suddenly feel peaceful. It's wonderful. Uh, but it actually to really develop that as, a, as an abiding, as something that's, that has strength in it, then it ha- we have to develop it. And it can take, it actually can take to develop kusala, a wholesome Calm in our life can take a lot of effort sometimes because there's a lot of forces against that. There's a lot of forces that would sometimes, if you leave the mind to its own devices, it would just fall to the lowest common denominator, just <laughs> go into depression or go into negativity. To even develop summer, to develop this wittaka wichara we've been developing, to bring the mind back to the breath take effort. There's something in this that just perhaps doesn't want to bother to go against that. 
And then to maintain, to sustain that which has been cultivated, which is wholesome, to be able to sustain it through a lifetime, bit by bit. Uh, these, these barometers, these qualities, these wholesome qualities, something that we can sustain. I think it's been hard, going back to this question of monasteries and not monasteries, it's been hard for me to do a very um, um, I've never actually got into comparing, you know, to sort of trying to compare which is best and which isn't I've never really gone into that to me they were just different phases of my life and in fact the monastery has receded, it feels like another lifetime in many ways, although if I I can recall it. Um, it's somewhere there in my energetic body, and I think partly why why it hasn't been in some ways. There's a lot of differences, obviously, but in many ways there's a continuity. And I think because there's many of the principles from the monastery that have gone directly into my lay life um, that doesn't feel so different. Um, in the heart of my being, I don't feel different as a nun or as a lay person though the forms were different, and they do have different effects. I think that uh, lay life is more dispersed, it's true. It is, in a way. Um, one has to work sometimes harder to create that sense of container, and to create skillful support. Um, it's easier, one of the things I appreciated in the monastery, that when talking about meeting edges, or working with that which was uncomfortable, there was a lot to hold one uh, in that situation, and I notice that in lay life it's just easier to turn on the TV <laughs> or open the fridge or go down to the shop or go to the movies um, when one kind of gets into a, a, a state of being that one doesn't want to really hang out with. Um, I learned, I, I really feel, it's, I feel um, monasticism has pitfalls. I mean, it's a powerful thing to pick up. As I would have said, his teachings are, are power. They are power. They're powerful and they can have very positive effects and they can have pitfalls. He made an analogy like picking up a snake. Uh, monasteries can be like that as well. Um, they, can, they can really turn around and Dharma centers can be like that. Um, amazing things that can go on in Dharma centers. <laughs> it uh, can turn around and you know, if you pick the snake up wrongly by the tail, it can, it can poison you. To care how to pick up and how to pick up a form like a monastic form, where one doesn't land up bitter. Many people go into monasteries and, and feel quite sometimes quite bitter or into spiritual practices for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they haven't been. Um, it's not sometimes in in one's own vulnerability and naivety and idealism. Um, one can walk into a situation where um, one can be vulnerable to abuse of, of power. Maybe in quite subtle ways, maybe not so subtle ways, through a system, through a structure, through teachers. So that, that does happen. It does happen. We all have heard about, you know, a person experienced that happening sometimes. 
But there was for me a lot, a lot. I mean, I'm very grateful for my monastic experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.